Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Well, good morning, Wildwood, and turn your Bibles, please, to Romans 1.1 this morning. It's time to begin. We spent the last five weeks flying over the Alps, so to speak, of Romans, looking at the, the five major themes that we've identified uh, that, that come out in, in this 16 chapters, and now we have landed, and now we have our packs on and our hiking boots, amen, and we're ready to start navigating the trails and, and dissecting and pulling this letter apart and in and, and, and the... Uh, analogy of John Piper uh, mining the depths and pulling up the nuggets of gold and saying, look at that! Look at that. That is my job. I am a miner. I mine the depths of Scripture and I pull out nuggets. And the reality is I don't do anything that really you can't be doing yourself. I just get paid to do it. I have a little bit more time to do it. But I hope that one of the things that, that I convey to you in the course of my ministry is that you can and ought to be doing the same things. In family worship, heads of household, you should be doing the same thing. I'm modeling for you what family worship looks like. That's, that's it. Is what we do here, you do at home. That, that's it. You, you open the Word, and you give the sense, and you say, what does it mean for us? That's all we do here. It's not complicated, but man is it deep. Man, is it rich. Uh, you know, the, the book of Romans is regarded as the most important letter ever written. The most important letter ever written. I would say the most important theological letter ever written, but there's no other letter written that would be more important than this, theological or otherwise. It's the most important letter ever written, period. And we're about to dissect it for the next, I don't know, two to three, maybe four years. Now, before we jump into this, I, I do want to give a bit of an update because, once again, we have another thing to celebrate this morning. Not only do we celebrate 31 people joining our church, five people being baptized, all these beautiful children uh, that we're watching, we, you know, we do that so they see baptism. Uh, we bring them in here so they see baptism. But last week, I, I said partnership. You know, I used that rope the tug rope. We had a big, big old boy over here. Josh, thanks for being part of that. And then we had George over here, a little five-year-old, strong, but no match for, for Josh. And, and we said partnership, membership is not George pulling harder, but rather more hands on the rope, more people pulling in the same direction. And there were two applications. One is where you have your own personal struggles and you're pulling with all your might, and what you need is not to pull harder, but for more people to come alongside you and pull with you. The other application is where the church says we have this amazing opportunity to move this mountain, and we need more hands on the rope. It's not that if you're giving faithfully, we need you to give more, but rather we need more people to put their hands on the rope and take up that mantle and pull in the same direction. And last week... So I asked this, Sunday, this past Sunday that the church would raise $140,000 in order to pay off our debt by this coming Wednesday. August 31st, that's the end of our fiscal year. It changes the picture of our next fiscal year if we can be out of debt. So I asked that last Sunday, and as of Wednesday, we raised $62,000. 
from this congregation. Praise the Lord. Now, again, I just want to reiterate that, that there are some people that are already, they already have their hands on the rope. They're pulling as hard as they can. They're faithful givers. A, a faithful giver just says, Lord, do you want me to do anything about that? And if the answer is yes, then, then it's obedience to the Lord. If the answer is no, then there's freedom. Right? If the Lord says, you know what, you're already given everything I want you to give, then there's freedom. There, there's no harm there. Last week, we had a visitor who visits... I don't know, a handful of times a year. Very, very little connection to Wildwood Church donated half of what we received last week. They were there, they were there last Sunday. Folks, this is what it means to live by faith. I didn't know why the Lord wanted me to be so, so bold in saying, let's pay off the building last Sunday. But there was someone in our congregation that was blessed themselves and was able to pass that blessing along to our church. And now my invitation to you is that you complete the task. So we're $78,000 from paying off a multi-million dollar building. <laughs> so close, so close. I, I heard one pastor uh, of a church plant sort of quip, sort of joke, tongue-in-cheek, but sort of real. He declared that, that, that they had already secured the land to plant their next church, and that they had already received, secured 100% of the finances to build the building that would go on that property. He said, there's one caveat. It's in your pockets. <laughs> folks, folks, that, yeah. And I'm not sure how that landed at that church, but it is true. How, how does God fund his ministry in the world through you and me. He gives us resources, and then he impresses upon our hearts how much we should keep. Let me say that again. The Lord gives us resources and then impresses upon our hearts how much we should keep for ourselves. That, that's faithful stewardship. So many of us are asking the wrong question, how much do I give? God gives all of it to us. And the Lord wants us to be asking him, how much, Lord, do you want me to keep for my family? And the rest, where do I invest in your kingdom? All right, so we are $78,000 from closing that gap, paying off this multi-million dollar building. Folks, we're right there. I believe that we will pay off the building uh, by the end of the week. That, that's, my, that's my belief. I'm going to say it, and I believe it, and I think the Lord wants us to do it. All right, so Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans was written about 57 A.D., so a, a little over 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. About 57 A.D. It was written from Corinth, probably from one of Paul's converts' home, probably Gaius. Paul was looking forward to taking an offering that he had received from Macedonia and Achaia, taking that offering from those churches up to Jerusalem, and then he wanted to come to Rome, and he wanted to spend some time with the church at Rome. He had met a handful of people in his travels who were, at the time of the writing, residents in Rome. 
And so he sort of was familiar of, of this body of believers that no apostle had ever actually gone to. So it's kind of an, an anomaly. So usually the way that churches were planted, New Testament churches were planted, is an apostle went and preached the gospel, made converts, and planted a church. But Rome was not planted by an apostle, contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine. Peter had not yet made it to Rome. Paul had not yet made it to Rome. Paul says in Romans 15, I want to go and I want to build not on someone else's foundation. I want to go where the work is fresh. I want to go where no one else has gone. All right, so he's going to go to Rome and then go to Spain. So he's building a church. He, he's writing to a church, excuse me. He's writing to a church that already existed. How did they come into existence? If an apostle had not gone and preached the gospel to them. Well, the... the Fourth century Latin father Ambrosacher, Ambrosacher posits, and he was a couple hundred years removed, but he, he suggests that it was the rank and file members of the church that heard the gospel and took it back, back to the Jewish synagogues, and began to share the gospel, and they believed the gospel. And they planted a church. A, a, a church was formed when ordinary people heard the gospel and planted a church. Now, where, where might we get that in Scripture? Acts 2 records that there were people from all over the world, including visitors from Rome. They were there present when, when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples and they were speaking in languages that they had not learned, but that other people could hear and understand, foreign languages. And they're preaching the gospel, and people are hearing it and believing the gospel. And Peter stands up and he preaches, and on that day, 3,000 people were saved and baptized. And most likely, a number of them were from Rome. They were converted received the Holy Spirit, were baptized, and went back to Rome and did what Christians do. They told people about it. And a church was formed. And so Paul knows that there's a church in Rome, and he's eager to get there. He's eager to make sure that, that they receive the full truth of the gospel, and he's able to encourage them and teach them and train them, and then they can support him on his way to Spain. So he lays out that hope in chapter 1 and then expounds upon it in chapter 15. So let's read the passage here. And I would say jump into it verse by verse, but there's only one verse this morning, so really phrase by phrase. All right, so Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to be thankful for today, so much to rejoice, to celebrate, to give you glory for. Father, you are doing good things in this church. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to close the gap, to finish the task of paying off this building. Help us to walk by faith. Help us keep preaching the gospel and and drawing people uh, to, to the gospel. Holy Spirit, you have to do that work. 
you have to soften their hearts, but Lord, help us to speak it and preach it and proclaim it. And I pray that you continue to, to change people's lives. Lord, I pray that you bless now the preaching of your word and be with us as we set off on this great journey of walking through Romans together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so this is a typical Greek letter with a typical Greek salutation. Begins with Paul. How do, we, how do we begin letters? We say, dear so-and-so, right? People still write letters. You know that? And, and the way that you typically write a letter, an informal letter, is dear so-and-so, right? Well, in the Greek culture, they identified themselves first. And then they identified who they were writing to. So Paul, who was Paul? Paul's the same man that we call Saul in Acts chapter 7 through 9. It was not uncommon for Jews, especially those who interacted with, maybe did business with the Greco-Roman world, to have a Jewish name and a Greek name or Roman name. So Saul was the Jewish name, and Paul was the Greco-Roman name for the same man. It would be a mistake for us, and this is common, and I just want to correct the record, it would be a mistake for us to say that Saul's name was changed to Paul at his conversion. That, that, that's not what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, which is after Paul's conversion, the Holy Spirit calls him Saul. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, Luke records, so Luke is traveling with this man named Paul on his missionary journeys, and Luke records in, in Acts 13, 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul. All right, so I just want to correct the record. Saul's name was not converted or changed when he became a Christian. He always had both names, a Jewish name and a Greek or a Roman name. <clears throat> he was a first century missionary who walked, people estimate, 10,000 miles. 10,000 miles on three missionary journeys, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't until he went out into the Greco-Roman world, as recorded in Acts, that we begin to refer to him as Paul, that Luke refer refers to him as Paul. So he goes out, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He calls himself that in Romans chapter 13, the apostle to the Gentiles. Now it's estimated that some 500,000 people had believed in the name of Jesus by the end of the first century. So it goes from a, a ragtag group of maybe a, a hundred or, or two hundred with about twelve leaders. We call them apostles. It, it goes from that to, on the day of Pentecost, just a few months after Jesus' resurrection, to three thousand people. And the Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. About seventy years later, that number is half a million people, and it's all word of mouth, right? There's no internet, there's no broadcast, it's word of mouth. I think Paul has the lion's share of, he wouldn't want the credit, but I think that 
he gets the assist on a lion's share of those 500,000 converts in the first century after Jesus' resurrection. And now I think you'd be hard-pressed to share the gospel without referring to one of Paul's letters. Paul wrote half of the letters of the New Testament. There's 26 letters in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them. And what most people use to share the gospel with someone, that when, they're, when they're telling people how to be saved, most people that I know use the book of Romans, right? We call it the Romans road to salvation. So Paul is hugely instrumental. That's, again, why I can stand here and say that this is the most important letter ever written by the most important leader in the church. Again, he would, he would balk at, at that uh, nomenclature, at, at that designation. He would balk at that. And he'd say, glory to Christ. But we can't deny the fact. Now, I, I talk about Paul's conversion. We read that in Acts chapter 9. Paul was not favorable to Christ or to the church or to the gospel initially. Paul was a Jew. He was a devout Jew. He was a Pharisee. I want you to listen to what Paul says about himself before Christ. He says in Philippians 3, 5 and 6, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, his, his faith, his Judaism, his heritage goes back all the way to birth. You know, he's not a convert. He's not a He's not uh, a convert to Judaism. He was born a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, through and through, right? We would say, uh, I was, I'm, a, I'm a, a born and raised Texan. <clears throat> As to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, so he, he, he wasn't just a Jew, he was a Pharisee. He was an instructor, a teacher, a leader. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Saul was a persecutor, of the, not, not neutral, not, well, that's your faith, this is my faith. No, Paul was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, he says. He was completely devoted to following the law at least as they understood that a person can follow the law. In Acts chapter 7, Luke records that the people laid their cloak at Saul's feet when they martyr the church's first victim, Stephen. When they stone Stephen to death, Saul, the Pharisee, is standing there. People lay their cloaks at his feet. That's a symbol that he gives approval of what is happening. And then in 8.1, Luke clarifies, makes it clear, Saul approved of his execution. This man that wrote this letter in half the New Testament approved of the execution of Stephen, who was preaching the gospel of Christ. By Acts 9, Saul is no longer content He gets bored with persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And so he decides to take his show on the road and go to Damascus in order to imprison and take captive the Christians who were there. And it is on the way to Damascus that Saul is approached 
by Jesus Christ himself in a bright light, Saul is blinded, hears the, the voice of Jesus Christ, is blind for three days until Jesus sends one of his disciples, Ananias, who has heard of Saul, is afraid to go to him. Imagine being Ananias, who has heard, Saul is looking for you to throw you in prison and maybe to kill you. And Jesus says, I want you to go to his house. I, w I want you to go where, where Saul is currently staying. He's blind. And he says to Ananias, he's an instrument of my instrument of mine to take my name to the Gentiles. Jesus says, I'm taking you, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? I'm taking you, Saul, and you're going to be an instrument of mine to the Gentiles. And the suffering that you once inflicted upon Christians, you will now suffer for my namesake. Now, he introduces his purpose to us in chapter 1. I, I, I want to convince you that, that my theology is the right theology, that, that I have the true gospel, that Jesus gave me the gospel. I'm an apostle of Christ, right? And I want you to partner with me in ministry. Now, if you were to try to sell yourself to a group of people that you've never met and offer your expertise, your leadership, you wanted them to partner with you, what would you use to sell yourself? Perhaps you would use your pedigree. Perhaps you would use your education or your success, your experience. Maybe you would name drop. So Paul knew certain people from Rome. In fact, he greets people that the church is meeting in their house, Prisca and Aquila. He knows them. So maybe you would name drop. Maybe you would start your letter with, hey, listen, Prisca and Aquila suggested that I write to you to ask for your support. But what does Paul do? How does he sell himself? He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now that word servant is the word doulos. And I think servant softens the blow of what that Greek word actually means. That Greek word means slave. Now, you and I have a connotation of slavery, and the Greeks and the Romans had a connotation of slavery. And neither one of them was noble. And neither one of them was admirable. Neither one of them, you know, whether it's our connotation, what we think of slavery, or what the Romans and Greeks think of slavery, slavery was obviously something to be avoided at all cost. It was for those who could not provide for themselves and had nothing, no other choice, but to give themselves fully and wholly and completely to their owner, to their master, to someone else. They would become property. This is how the Apostle Paul conceives of himself in his mind. I am a slave of Christ. Now elsewhere, we are called heirs with Christ. In fact, Paul is going to tell us that we are heirs with Christ. 
And why are we heirs with Christ? Because we are children of the Father. Right? We've been adopted into the family. And so if we are co-heirs with Christ, then Christ is our brother. And yet, at the same time, our master. It's another tension. You know, Pastor Matt identified a tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of men. Here's another tension. There's a, there's a tension between the already and not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, came with Christ, and yet we wait for it in its full consummation. In the same way, we are both co-heirs with Christ and slaves of Christ. The New Testament doesn't try to alleviate the tension. Paul goes from persecutor of Christ to servant or slave of Christ. Isn't God good? Isn't God able? If ever there was someone that was unreachable, if ever there was someone that we'd say, why bother going to Saul? Right? Who is that person in your life? Shoot, maybe you think you are that person. Maybe you think you're the person that God would never change because you're too far gone. Now, he called himself slave of Christ. That was his conception. And I would argue that that is what Paul expects you and I to have as a mindset. He says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Why can Paul say that? How can Paul say that? That's an audacious statement. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you imitate me, you're going to be imitating Christ. How can Paul say that? Because in his mind, he conceived of himself as nothing more than a slave of Christ, living only to do what Christ wanted him to do. This is the essence of discipleship. This is what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we talk about Lord. Do you submit to Jesus as Lord? What does that mean? Uh, maybe Americans have a disadvantage because we don't have lords over us. It, it means master. It means king. It means ruler. It means everything is submitted to Jesus. That's the essence of discipleship. Well, that was Paul's concept. He was an apostle. He took the gospel to the Gentiles. He wrote half the New Testament. He was a slave to Christ. I'm not. Paul said in Ephesians 6.6, 6, he's speaking to actual slaves, and he's telling them to work for their masters, their human masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, as slaves of Christ. If anyone needed to be told, you are free in Christ, it would be slaves of men. And yet Paul says, you're bond servants of Christ, you're slaves of Christ, Christian. I still don't believe it. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul tells us, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. That is slave language. Only slaves are bought with a price. Brother and sister, in Christ, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul continues. He says he was called to be an apostle. I want you to notice here the order in which Paul describes himself. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. The servant part is what he could control. I am a servant of Christ. That's a mindset. That's how I think. That's what I can control. Called to be an apostle is something God controls. Could get it twisted. Paul, an apostle and servant of God. Servant of God in the Old Testament was a noble thing. David, Moses, Abraham, servants of God, called servants of God, was a noble thing. If he, wanted to, if he wanted to emphasize his own authority, his own place, his own stature, he'd say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one, a messenger, what I say is Jesus speaking through me. That's what it means to be an apostle. Jesus speaking through Paul. Paul, an apostle and a servant of God. That would, we would clearly see that Paul is taking a high view of himself. But instead he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, that's how I conceive myself, that's my mindset, that's my mentality, called, in other words, God did this to me. It's not because I was good enough, not because I was strong enough, but because God gave me the calling to be an apostle. Where did he experience his calling as an apostle? Acts 9.15. This is where Jesus says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles. This is his conversion experience. In Acts chapter 9. Now that's where he experienced the call. That's where he received the call to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. But where did the call to be an apostle originate? Where did it begin? When did it begin? For that, we have to go to Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, but when he, go, uh, not just yet, not just yet, Jacob, just before that, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, but when he who had set me apart before I was born... When was the Apostle Paul called to be an apostle? Before he was born. Which means what? It means it's not because of any virtue on Paul's part. Not because anything that God saw in him. Not because any, any faithfulness or integrity or intellect and ability or willingness 
No, it was a gift of God's grace. That's why Paul can say to us in, in Romans chapter 12 that none of us should think more highly than we ought to think, that we all have a function in the body. The body has many members, and each member has its own function. Don't think more highly than you ought to think because God called you to that before you were born. It's not because of ability or lack of ability that God has you doing what you're doing, but rather because that's where he has you. And a servant of Christ just says, okay, okay, I'll do whatever you call me to do, God. Why? Because I belong to you. Because my body is not my own. I've been bought with a price. On Paul's, uh, th- here go to Galatians 1.1, Paul says, he, he introduces himself in Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul knew something about being trained up by the best of the best. He was instructed as a, as a Pharisee by the rabbi Gamaliel, one of the best instructors of his time. Paul knew something about pedigree. He knew something about education. He knew something about interning. He knew all of this. An apprenticeship, he knew this. And he's saying to the church at Galatia that I'm I'm an apostle not because someone else invested in me, but because of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ called me out and taught me his gospel. On his three missionary journeys, Paul was stranded He was stoned and left for dead. He was snake-bitten. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was harassed. He He was maligned by church people, and yet he did not waver in his commitment to Jesus Christ. Why? Because his calling was not what defined him. His mindset, he was a servant, a slave of Christ, and come what may, I will be faithful. Christians, we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul, slave of Christ. No matter what happened to him, no matter how he suffered, no matter what life threw at him, he knew who he was and what he had been called to do, and the calling was the gift of God's grace. What drove him, what directed him, was a mindset. I'm a slave of Christ. Paul said he was set apart for the gospel of God. He was set apart or selected by God to take the gospel specifically to Gentiles. Romans eleven thirteen once again, says that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He saw it as his specific mission and ministry to take the gospel to Gentiles. He was a Jew, but he was called, he was set apart to take the gospel specifically to Gentiles. In Acts chapter 15, the first council of the church was centered around the controversy of whether Gentiles must first become Jews in order to be saved. Must they first become circumcised as a mark of conversion to Judaism before they can place their faith in the Jewish Messiah? I can understand that. Jesus was a Jew. 
Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. I can understand why the Jews would say, this is a Jewish faith. You come into Judaism by circumcision, and then you can believe in Jesus Christ. And Paul is like, the Holy Spirit is being given to Gentiles, and they're not circumcised. And we don't need to go any further. And the Jerusalem Council, the, the leadership of the church, Peter and James, they stood up and they, they debated this and they thought about this and they prayed about this and they said, you know what? It's not right for us to add to the gospel. It's not right for us to, to add anything to the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith. And so if, if God wants to save Gentiles and give them the Holy Spirit just like he's given us, praise be to God. Just make sure that you take care of the poor. And Paul says, I'm happy to do it. And they go out and they bless him. And I think the same heart that drove Paul back to Jerusalem, where he had been such a zealot as a Jew, as a Pharisee, to go back to Jerusalem, the awkward conversations, the awkward family reunions, the awkward uh, dynamics in that city, what drove him to go back to Jerusalem when he was having such success out in the Greco-Roman world was a heart for unity of believers. That Jews and Gentiles would love each other in Christ. And it's that same heart that Paul writes this letter to the Romans to be reconciled. Romans 12, 13, 14... 15, all an appeal to stop getting wrapped around the axle over petty issues and focus on what really matters. He says he was set apart for the gospel of God. There are two senses in which the gospel is of God. It has both a genitive, both a, an origin, as well as a subject sense. So the gospel is of God in the sense that it comes from Him. The gospel comes from God. Why is that important for us to know? God is the author of the gospel and the initiator of the gospel. No one forced God to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to Him. No one forced Him to do that. It was His idea. It is of God. It's also of God because it's a message about Him. So it comes from Him, and He is the subject of the gospel. It's from and about God. It's a message that tells us about God. It's a message that tells us what God wants us to know about life with Him. So we don't have to guess we don't have to speculate. I think about the verse that says it's not on the top of a mountain that you have to go high or at the bottom of the sea that you have to go low or across the ocean that you have to go far, but it's near you. In other words, God gave us the gospel so we would know it. We don't have to guess what his right relationship with God look like. He gave it to us. He told us what he wants to know. The gospel is good news. That's what it means, the good news. It's a message that God set Paul apart to proclaim far and wide, take this to the Gentiles. And it begs the question that I would love to answer this morning as we close, what is the gospel? 
What is the gospel? Paul tells us that he gives us the gospel several times in this letter. He says in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the message that God is reconciling the world to himself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the image of baptism. We are buried with Christ. The old is gone. What comes up out of the water is a new creation. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice who is reconciling who. All world religion is about you reconciling God to yourself. You making amends to a deity so that he would accept you so that he would come to you, so that you can woo him in, so you can draw him close. Do more good is the message of every world religion. The message of the gospel is that God came to us, that God is reconciling us, that Jesus is giving us something that we could never get ourselves, which is his righteousness. Be reconciled to Christ. Now, what specifically are we called to believe? Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What are we called to believe? The Bible is thick and small print, and it says a lot of things that might be confusing. What is necessary to know? Because I think some people think, well, until I know the whole Bible, I can't be saved. Well, the reality is that until you're saved, you can't know the Bible. It is spiritual and spiritually discerned. So no wonder you read the Bible and you don't understand it because you don't have the Holy Spirit who inspired it. You have to first be saved. There are a couple things that you need to believe. There's a belief. There's a faith. And faith means fully convinced to Paul. So when he says believe, he means fully convinced. So you have to be fully convinced of, of a few things. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, For I deliver to you as of first importance. Okay? Gospel importance. Like this is what you need to believe. And then we can build on this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance 
with the Scriptures. So this Christ, the one that was revealed in Scripture, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, really went to the cross for your sin. Not sins generally, but for your sin, which implies what? That you recognize you are a sinner. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus went to the cross for my sin. And he was literally buried, and he literally came out of the grave three days later. I think I can boil it down even more than that. I think I can boil the heart of the matter even more than that. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Before you could clean yourself up, before you could make yourself whole, Christ died for you. Now, that's the gospel. What do you do with it? Three things quickly here. One, believe it. What are you responsible for? Believe it. Believe the gospel. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? You, you, th this baptism is a public statement. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin and saved me from it. So believe it. My question is, do you believe it? I don't know where you have come from this morning. There are plenty of visitors here this morning. Maybe you've come to watch someone be baptized, or maybe you grew up in this church. I don't take anything for granted. Do you believe the gospel yourself? Jesus Christ died for your sin to save you from it. Once you believe it, you have the delightful duty to preach it, to preach it. Paul continues Romans 10, 14, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? At some point, someone who believed the gospel preached the gospel to you. Someone who believed the gospel and said, Jesus, you died for my sin, they embrace the delightful duty to preach the gospel to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have heard it. Someone said, it is my delight to proclaim to you the message that Jesus saves. And you believed it. And now my question is, has it stopped with you? The gospel will go on. There's always a remnant. But how much further, how much broader, how much wider will it go when those who have believed it feel the delightful duty to proclaim it? And finally, protect it. Paul says in Galatians 1.68, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's astonished. He's shocked that they're turning away from the gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to add to it. They want to change it just a little bit. But even if we or an angel... Paul and, and my team, even if we or an angel should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Accursed means to hell. 
Paul says to hell with anyone who would twist the gospel. Why? Because a twisted gospel curses people. It destroys rather than builds up. It confuses rather than enlightens. It brings death rather than life. Brother and sister, who has been assigned the task of protecting the gospel? Who was Paul talking to in his letter to Galatia? He did not address it to the elders, though that is our task. He holds the congregation accountable for protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news, and there is no other good news than in the gospel. It is us, we, who have been called to protect it, to proclaim it, to believe it. So it bears repeating, what is the gospel? It is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. It is Christ reconciling sinners to a holy God. It is the message that Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day. The gospel is the message that no matter who you are and no matter what you have done, Jesus Christ died for you to make you right with God. It is because of the gospel that the Apostle Paul entered into heaven to the applause of the martyrs he sent there. Father, you are so gracious to us. You are glorious. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for calling us. We thank you for giving us the righteousness of Christ. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who does not believe it, I pray today would be the last day that they don't believe it. Lord, would you save them today? And for those that do believe it, help us to recognize this weighty task of proclaiming it, of preaching it, and protecting it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.